0: Hi, folks. Welcome to another installment of the O Group of the World Warter Nation podcast with myself, World Water Explorer Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Battlefield Guide, Ben Main, here at World War Nation. It's obviously been a very tough few months for everyone with what has been happening around the world with COVID, and similarly an intense 12 months for me on a personal level for various reasons, which is why we've been a little bit quiet here at World Water Nation. With myself, Ben, and the rest of the team are really looking forward to starting again to bring you regular episodes of the O Group on the World Water Nation podcast as we look to play our small part in helping keep the history of this period alive. We're really excited about what we have planned in these O Group episodes. We'll be speaking with historians and experts alike about all aspects of the Second World War. We'll be talking with veterans about their own wartime service and discussing personal stories of those who have witness to these events. As well as examining equipment and looking at various gear from this period. We'll also be bringing you a series of war walks, where we shall explore and guide you through the various battlefields and locations connected with World War Two. Anyhow, without further ado, let us dive right into our latest episode. With the anniversary fast approaching, it's obviously that time of year again when our television screens be graced by the Cooler King himself, Mr. Steve McQueen, in that fantastic 1963 war film classic, The Great Escape. In our latest podcast episode, we're speaking with historian Guy Walters trying to unravel fact from fiction behind the real Great Escape, which is a truly fascinating and tragic story in itself. Guy, arguably the most central figure at the heart of the Great Escape story, is that of RAF officer Roger Bushell. What was his experience of the war so far, and how did he come to find himself interned in Stalag Luft III? Well, Bushell's experience of the
1: war was um, utterly disappointing for Roger Bushell. He was a very big sort of kind of alpha male style figure. He came from a very wealthy South African family. Um, he was a real Royster Deisterer, and he was a member of the Millionaires Squadron before the War 601 Squadron. Um, you know, ran with a pretty racy set in London. And, uh, you know, he'd been the squadron leader. And on his first day of operations, I think it was the 10th of May 1940, on his second sortie, um, he was shot down, um, and which wasn't entirely the kind of uh, uh, experience that uh, <laughs> Bushell was really wanting. So he spent much of the war, and he was a good linguist. He spent a lot of the war um, in captivity, trying to escape, and he got very near the Swiss border on one at one stage. Um, he had also escaped to Prague, and he was there in about '42 during the time of the Heydrich assassination. He wasn't connected with it, but you know he was living pretty dangerously. But he was always recaptured, and by the time he emerges into Stalag Luft III, he's got this kind of reputation as being an inveterate escaper, um, and it's for that reason why he's um, asked by the senior British officer to head up, um, you know, the the role of Big X, as it's called, which means you're head of security, well, not head of security, you're, you're basically head of escaping and also head of um, providing information back to MI9, the intelligence network in London.
0: Well, you touched on there, given his uh, continual escape record and that of other repeat escape offenders, I suppose you call them. Why was he and others like that not interned in Kolditz? Um, It's a good question, but I think
1: one of the reasons is that Stalag Luft 3 was regarded as a maximum security camp. So um, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, Kold, Kolditz was just one of quite a few maximum security camps um colditz has sort of kind of got a, a perfectly justified reputation um as 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 being one of you know the hardest to get out of but i think colditz's reputation also rests in the fact that it it frankly looks the part
0: and it's still there who were the other prominent members of the escape committee and drivers behind this mass escape attempt well, you've,
1: you've got quite, quite a few you know, people obviously involved in escaping. And I would like to talk to you about really how widespread wanting to escape was, because it really wasn't as widespread an activity as people might think it is today. Um, uh, the, I suppose the other really significant figure is a man called Wings Day, um, who um, had uh, also led a mass escape the year before from another camp. Um, so uh, he, he was another driver for the, for, the, for the idea of a mass breakout. But, I mean, there is something I'd like to explore is the fact that the whole idea of a mass breakout, as some prisoners and even and especially the Germans thought the whole thing was a very stupid idea indeed. uh, And it was going to be massively counterproductive, as indeed
0: it was. What sort of setup was there in the Third Reich of POW camps during the war and how many of them were there and did these kind of all fall under one unified control structure?
1: I'm not an expert on the whole POW structure in the war. Uh, you would have to talk to someone else about that. I What I do know about Stalag Luft III, the word Luft stands for air, and that means this is a camp run by the German Air Force for captured Air Force personnel. Um, Stalag Luft III are the prison camp of the Great Escape, which is in Silesia, which was part of Germany before the war, is about 100 miles south-east uh, uh, of Berlin. And, and that is run by the Luftwaffe. And you have camps also run by the Navy for naval officers. And you know you have regular uh, camps run for um officers, and they're called or offlags. Kolditz was an offlag, offlag four c famously. So um all the camps are run by sort of different services, if you like. But as the war went on, uh, responsibility for the camps started to fall more and more under the aegis of a man called Heinrich Himmler, who I'm sure listeners need no introduction to.
0: No, certainly not. What were conditions like in Stalag Luft 3 for Allied servicemen, and how did this compare to the other German POW camps not under the Luftwaffe's jurisdiction? Conditions in POW camps throughout the war got progressively
1: worse for obvious reasons. Supplies were more and more limited. The Germans were less willing to feed POWs that much. Red Cross parcels were either not getting through or being pilfered by the by the German guards uh, often. So uh, as the war goes on, uh, conditions get pretty tough. Um, the calorific intake of, of most POWs was probably no more than about 1,400 calories a day. And, and um, you know, it made sort of kind of doing significant amounts of exercise very difficult. Also, uh, some of the people I'd spoken to, uh, you know, were, were saying that your libido goes out the roof. So I think you're very much kind of living a kind of almost shadowy existence. Um, saying that, POW camps were by and large, um, uh, you know, they they... they let's get away from the idea they were like concentration camps. People weren't, you know, there were obviously exceptions, but they weren't maltreated in the way they would be at a concentration camp. Because, of course, if word had got out that the Germans are maltreating um, allied POWs, then, of course, there would be retribution on the German POWs held in allied hands. So there was a kind of mutually assured destruction, if you like. Um, but no, by and large, the, the, the camps are all right. There were some real hellholes, though. Um, I can't remember their names. It certainly, you know, rats were a regular feature of several latrines. It's not a place you want to find yourself. It's, it's, it's a lot worse than Butlins, put it that way.
0: <laughs> That's a very vivid description. <laughs> um, can you, you kind of touched it there anyway, but can you paint a picture for us of the daily routine of camp life, both the POWs and the German guards?
1: Well, I think the sort of POW life was, you, you, you had options. You, you either did nothing and you lay in bed all day and, and, and you just psychologically that was very bad for you. And, you know, and even though, of course, sensitivity towards psychological issues um, back in the 1940s was not as great as it is today, it was recognised that if you uh, did very little, you, you, you would end up basically getting the terrible black dog. You know, you'd feel depressed. And, and you know, people are aware of this and people were moved in, into different huts just to get a new breath of life in terms of your, your, your company. You know, this is something that I think that many of us are starting to identify with a bit more strongly uh, during lockdown, of course, which is w- when we're talking. So I think that um, uh, your daily routine, you had to get up, you had to make some food, there was there was also a sort of place where food could be got from. Um, and then you would, you, you know, you basically your day was your own. So you know, if you wanted to um, help you know, start digging a tunnel, you could dig a tunnel if you wanted to uh, study for your uh, university degree or your accountant's exams you could do that because remote degrees are being offered by London University um, so you, you could keep yourself pretty busy um, and I think most of them you know wanted to keep to kind of standard meal times you could do a bit of sport uh, you could to kick a football around as I say you know you, you weren't going to play a hard 80 to 90 minutes of football or rugby because you know you, you weren't that fit in terms of you know your calorific intake. Um, the German German Guard, I know less about their day to day routine, but that would involve, um, depending on which part of the the, the the camp staff you're involved in, if you're one of what were called the ferrets, who are members of the German military intelligence service, the Abwehr, you would be spending your day going around the camps, trying to, um, you know, work out, looking under tunnel, looking under huts, looking for tunnels, uh, you know, trying try to stymie or discover escape attempts. So, um, and, you know, your regular German guards would, of course, just be posted up into a guard tower or walk around the fence on a sort of regular basis. Presumably they had a sort of, I don't know, eight, nine hour shift. And the officers would probably keep officer, you know, regular office hours in the camp. So, you know, it's it's a prison camp. So it would have very similar hours to a prison, frankly.
0: How big was Stalag Luft III at its height?
1: Ah, now I can never remember the precise numbers, but you're getting to, I mean, twenty to thirty thousand. I may be wrong, but I mean it gets bigger and bigger and bigger throughout the war for obvious reasons, because uh, you've got uh, uh, more and more people being shot down. You've got to remember that most men in that camp, because they were aircrew, had been in airplane crashes and and or seen their you know fellow combatants, you know fellow their comrades, you know shot down next to them or burnt into bits on a Lancaster or whatever it was. So no one ever wanted the top bunk because it was a common nightmare that you would dream falling out the sky. And as you did say, so, you would, you would sort of fall out the top bunk and hurt yourself. So it, it got bigger and bigger to the size of basically a reasonable town. Um, the compound that we're interested in, where the Great Escape takes place, is just a tiny part of the whole you know, camp. And that was called the North Compound. Um, and that consists of about, I don't know, 20 or 30 huts, you know, and the huts are about 100 feet long. And and throughout the war, they get more and more crowded because, of course, you've got more and more prisoners to cram into them.
0: Well, let's move on to the, the plan. What was Big X's plan for the breakout? When and how was he hoping to achieve this? And how many were they hoping to get out?
1: Bushell's plan was to have a... He wanted a big gesture. I mean, I argue very strongly in my book That I think that there's a touch too much of the messiah complex with Bushel. And I think that having been thwarted so many times, he wanted to to kind of do a big, have a big show, if you like. And the plan was to get hundreds of men out, hundreds of men out. And and in doing so, the logic was, and I think this myth still exists today, that is really going to, you know, annoy the Germans, hamper their war effort, you know, know, cause them a, a lot of aggro. It doesn't cause them a lot of aggro. There had been a great escape in forty-three from another camp, and there had been lots of great escapes throughout the war. In fact, I think the French should have the tally for the biggest great escape. And um, it, it, it's what happens when you do this great escape: the German security mounts what's called a gross fandung, a gross alarm, a big alarm, and it means that everybody who's available in Germany in a uniform. Is on a kind of harm's lookout detail. You're not bringing troops off the Russian front to hunt for great escapers. You're just using, you know, the forestry commission equivalent. You're using Hitler Youth. You're using the police. Um, in the the Great Escape of '43, the one that no one really knows about, when they had their big roundup, the Germans not only arrested all the escapers from that attempt, about 43 of them, but they also also rounded up another 14 and a half thousand people who are also escaping or foreign laborers away without proper leave papers. So what you're doing by having a great escape is that you're not ruining the German war effort at all. You're just ruining it for all your fellow escapers all over the Third Reich. So it's massively counterproductive. And despite this, and Bushell would have known about this, and Wings Day would have certainly known about it because he was the organiser of the great escape before. Despite this, Bushell insisted on going ahead with it. And the Germans, even when they got wind of the fact that a great escape was coming, said, "Listen." If you try to get hundreds of men out every night or whatever it is you're trying to do, you're just going to, you know, none of them are going to escape. And even if some of them do, so what? And you're going to also incur the wrath of the Gestapo and that's going to have terrible consequences on you. But still Bushell and Day go ahead by thinking, right, we're going to build this tunnel or these three tunnels, Tom, Dick and Harry, as people remember from the film. And we're going to, and then we're going to get hundreds of men out. I mean, in many ways, it was a sort of, Incredibly impressive operation, but I think it was fundamentally misguided, Um, and I I think this is really, really important to remember. The Great Escape was great in some ways, but also, as as, as some prisoners said, it was a big act of folly. And you've got to remember, and I think I'll mention this point now, that only a third of POWs were interested in escaping. Two-thirds had no wish to take part in any escape activities whatsoever. Um, they just wanted to you know, sit the war out. They knew they were safe. That barbed wire may represent uh, captivity, but it also represented their safety. And I think that you, you've just got to bear in mind that escaping is a, a minority activity. And that is not my, you know, my analysis. That is the analysis of a great escaper called Jimmy James, who some of your listeners will know. And Jimmy James says that and other interviewees in, in recordings, the Imperial War Museum said exactly the same thing. So Bushell's plan, to go back to your original question after this very long exegesis, is, is basically to try and get out as many men as possible um, in order to hamper the German war effort, which, as I say, is
0: misguided. What hurdles did the Allied escapee attempters have to contend with, and how did they manage to overcome these? Well, they had numerous
1: hurdles. First of all, you're digging a tunnel in sand, which, as anybody who's been to a beach and dug a big hole will know, <laughs> it's going to fall <laughs> fall in and collapse very quickly. So you've got to dig a, a very long tunnel, and and, and it, it, eventually the, hunnel, the tunnel that is used is one called Harry that goes 333 feet, give or take, um, all the way underneath a German part of the camp. So you've got to shore that up. Um, you've also got to be aware of the fact that Germans like driving around the compound in heavy lorries to make any tunnels collapse, just in case there's some there. Um, you've got to contend with the weather in March 44, which is when they end up trying to escape, which is unseasonably terrible incredibly cold um you've also got to contend uh with the idea that you know people don't have german looking civilian clothes so you've got to kind of modify the clothes you do have to look like you know civilian clothes you've got to find fake passes uh you've got to uh you've got to forge them um you've got to uh get hold of currency you've got to also get hold of enough food for the prisoners to take with them um, the whole thing is, is incredibly difficult. And you've got to remember, as the crow flies, as the crow flies, you're 650 miles from Biggin Hill. So it, it, it's a hell of a long way to go um, just in, 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 a, in, in a pair of kind of lightweight shoes or boots, um, a pair of what we're today called chinos. A lot of them didn't have anything like the right clothes um, in, in freezing conditions.
0: So it, it is a hugely uh, ambitious undertaking. Well, you touched on it a little bit there. The ingenuity and innovation of the prisoners its quite unbelievable, isn't it? How on earth did they manage to actually construct these tunnels in those conditions under German noses without the proper tools and equipment?
1: Well, they, you, you, because it's sand, that makes it easy to collapse. It also makes it relatively easy to dig. So you can kind of jerry-rig a tool together and, and and dig. Digging was a very dangerous occupation. I mean, obviously, I know that the tunnels were shored up with bedboards, as is well observed in the film. One of the... um. One of one of the big nasty things about digging a tunnel, incidentally, was that they tunneled naked the, the chaps. And also because their their bowels are somewhat loose, you would just have to basically urinate or defecate right in the tunnel in front of the chap <laughs> behind you. So it is literally a disgusting job tunneling, because you are tunneling through and you've just got a, a man's naked bottom in front of your face for hours at a time. So it it is it's not a great job, frankly. Um and you you you've, you've got um also the germans had a system of microphones under the ground to listen to na- noises of tunneling but of course what the POWs hadn't realized is that those those microphones have been accidentally switched off while they're rewiring the system and they no one had bothered to switch them on again so that was a german cock up um so it it is it is there is a lot of ingenuity a lot of these people had come from kind of technical backgrounds i think typically kind of raf officers come from somewhat more technical backgrounds maybe than their army counterparts and so a lot of them were very good at sort of inventing contraptions but a lot of these contraptions were using technology that being used in escapes you know in other camps throughout the war or also indeed in the first world war because a lot of these young men and they were basically basically largely in their 20s and early 30s a lot of these young men had been brought up on reading great escape stories from the first world war and so were aware of certain methods
0: that were used by their kind of forefathers a generation before how did you mentioned obviously the ferrets earlier how did they actually manage to hide these tunnels from them you know in this this great amount of sand and soil uh,
1: they, with, with great difficulty and you know one of the tunnels was discovered by the Germans because you've got to remember the, tu- the, 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 the huts are raised on uh, kind of concrete blocks or brick blocks about four foot off the ground so you can sort of crawl underneath them so the only place you can really go is through the kind of um, the sort of outflow for all the plumbing, um, and of course, you know, the Germans can't just dig up the plumbing every day. Um, so in many ways, what the Germans are looking for are suspicious, you know, deposits of sandy soil being left around the camp, um, and and the Germans are, you know, resolutely, um, you know, trying to find things, and you know, there are all constant tunneling attempts made, and probably about a hundred tunnel attempts are made. And most of them, by and large, most of them are discovered. What's incredible about Harry is that it was never discovered, um, you know, before it was used. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly, um, it, it's an incredibly, you know, it, it's a real testament to the, sort of how brilliant the security was in these tunnels. Can you take us through the night of the Great
0: Escape and what happened?
1: Well, uh, it, it's you have to imagine Hut 104 at about 9, 10 o'clock in the evening. Suddenly you've got 200 um, allied POWs. And look, look, only 50% of Great Escapers are British. So let's get away from the idea that the Great Escape is a, a, a uniquely British affair. It certainly got no Americans on the Great Escape, unlike the movie. And I think that's well known. Um, although Americans were involved before they were moved compounds um, in, in some of the kind of security for the tunnels. So we can thank the Americans a bit but you've got 200 men assembling on hut 104 to try and get out um and obviously the you know the atmosphere in hut 104 is very tense very nervous people are smoking trying to look relaxed doing the crossword um you know bushels pacing up and down wearing a suit posing as a bit a french businessman that he's going to escape as um <clears throat> you've got you know you've got a lot of chaps you know thinking am i going to get claustrophobic down the tunnel anybody who's claustrophobic was you know told they couldn't Go on the, on the escape, and a lot of people were very happy not to for that reason, because crawling 330 foot down a ever collapse potentially collapsing tunnel, you know, which is about two foot by two foot, is is not my idea of a fun way to spend a night. And you suddenly at about uh, 10 o'clock, you have got Johnny Bull who goes to the end of the tunnel and realizes that he can't um kind of raise the trapdoor um to get out. It's a kind of it's not really a trap trapdoor, but it's like a kind of frame that's holding up the soil above it. And it's kind of frozen and expanded in the changing kind of temperature. And it's it's so it takes him two hours to get out. When he looks out, he realizes the tunnel's about 20, 30 foot short. So that's another cock up. Um, So now things are two hours late already. He says, "Right, well, I'll hop into the trees. I'll have a guideline, just like in the film with Steve McQueen. And I'll tug on it when it's safe to come out. You've got to remember there was snow around. So you weren't making a lot of sound. It's not like they're escaping across, you know, a road where you would be clumping away. And um, by about midnight, the prisoners are starting to emerge. They run off into the trees. And then <clears throat> a little bit later, suddenly there's an air raid um, over Berlin. Germans cut off all the electricity. to have a blackout, which means there's no electricity in the tunnel. For the electric lights that have been jerry-rigged. And so they have to use tallow lamps, which, of course, are very flammable. Um, so if you're crawling down a tunnel with you know a heavy greatcoat, you could set light to yourself. People are also forgetting to pull each other through. So that delays things at no end. So the whole thing is, you know, like all military operations, as you know, as soon as you start, things start going wrong. They always do. You abandon your plan as soon as the first shot is fired. And that's pretty much the same with The Great Escape. You know, uh, some people apparently have panic attacks. It's very hard to to, to be certain. But certainly by about 4.30, 5 in the morning, You've got eighty men getting out, which is well under half of what Bushell wants. It's still an enormous amount, frankly. And then suddenly, um, I think it's Squadron Leader Reval Carter emerges at about five o'clock in the morning, and 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 he's spotted by a German guard, and and these four escapers are around the exit to the tunnel all have to put their hands up, and uh, they 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 are they are arrested. Um, and of course, the Germans go absolutely ape, as you might imagine. But obviously, seventy-six men have got out. They're on the run. And uh, Commandant Lindiner is summoned and, and he goes absolutely ballistic, as you can imagine, because he knows not just his neck's on the line for this, but also is that these escapers are now going to have a very, very uncertain future ahead of them.
0: Given the gross Fandung, hopefully I'm saying that right, um, and hostile attitude of the German population towards Allied airmen by this time of the war, what were their chances of making it home?
1: Their chances of making it home were very, very, very slim indeed. Um, I think that, you, yes, you're absolutely right when you say that the local population, the German population, did not care for Allied airmen. They called them terror flyers. Um, and indeed, you could see why, because what we did to Germany um, was a hell of a lot you know, uh, more punitive than than the Blitzkrieg. Um, the Allied and Americans were bombing Germany around the clock and tens of thousands of people were being killed and tens of thousands of people had lost family members so it was not uncommon for when a, 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 an Allied aircrew had safely parachuted to ground that they might find themselves being set upon by a vengeful local population and being strung up or shot there and then by angry villagers. I think it's pretty, you know, uh, com- compelling that you know if if my family had just been wiped out in an air raid and one of the guys who did it parachutes to ground right next to me, I think I might I think I might be a bit pissed off with him, frankly. So you you can sort of see why. You know, a, a lot of war crimes investigations um, after the war are looking at kind of aircrew who have just been shot on the spot by a local sort of, you know, local townspeople. So, yeah, it, it's, it's a very hostile environment to make an escape. First of all, you've got the temperature, you've got linguistic problems, you've got um, a, a local population certainly unwilling to help you. You've got the fact that people also, you know, some of the people who look British as a man, especially a man called Desmond Plunkett, most British name you can imagine. They also they just look British. They look like they should be walking down, you know, Rygate High Street and not down, you know, Hamburg High Street. So it's you've, you've got real problems there. And also you've got the fact is that, you know, no matter how compelling the forgeries of their papers are, some of them aren't that great. Things like Leipzig are spelt wrong on some papers. People are wearing overcoats. If a German opens their overcoat up, they'll still see a British maker's label because sometimes they've been taken off. Um, so there, there's a lot of lot of things that can go wrong. And so the chances of getting home are are, are almost zero.
0: Well, it sounds like the deck is well and truly stacked against them. Uh, you know, those 80 or so that have managed to get out the tunnel. Did any of those actually manage to make a home run?
1: Well, indeed, three of them did. Two Norwegians and, and one, one Dutch pilot. Um, and the reason why those guys largely managed to escape was, of course, both their countries had been occupied. And, um, excuse me, and both their countries have been occupied. So if you were two Norwegians, you could say you're a Norwegian forest, uh, foreign labourers, which is indeed what Muller and Bergsland, the two uh, Norwegians, posed as. They made their way north from the camp. They took trains up to Stettin, the port city, and there they slipped on board a uh, Swedish uh, cargo ship which went into Gothenburg um, and they uh, and, and they went to the British consul at Gothenburg and said, we've escaped. And they were flown uh, by a pair of mosquitoes from uh, Stockholm airport, Bromma airport uh, to Lucas um, in Scotland. So there they got to Scotland within about, I don't know, about 84 hours of leaving the camp. So they did two very successful home runs. The Dutch pilot, a man called Bram van der Stock or Bob van der Stock, spent three months escaping all the way across Europe he made his way all the way to um uh, he got his way to sort of through to Holland to Belgium to Paris down to the Pyrenees crossed the Pyrenees successfully a bit like James Coburn does in the movie and then he ended up um in the British Embassy in Madrid uh, and they got him down to Gibraltar and then he was thrown from Gibraltar all the way to Bristol um so he arrived there three months later so yeah he makes a home run as well all the rest um,
0: got got recaptured. Truly remarkable, isn't it, that story? Um, what fallout was there from this mass breakout in the Reich, both politically, I guess, the highest levels, and also the ramifications for those German guards and the commandant of of Three themselves?
1: Well, very good question. The fallout for, first of all, is that Hitler is really annoyed by this escape. He's, he's in a vengeful mood anyway. This is now 24th, 25th of March, 1944. And it, there's been a massive... Uh, massacre of of, uh, an SS police battalion by Italian partisans in the Via Sella in Rome, in which 33 members of an SS police battalion had been uh, blown up. And he had um, uh, ordered reprisals at a level of 10 to 1 against um, uh, uh, Italians for that. In fact, he wanted it to be a far greater ratio than that. So he was in a very vengeful mood. And when he heard about the Great Escape, he said, right, let's just shoot all of them. And according to Goering in his testimony at Nuremberg, Goering apparently said, oh, well, I managed to convince him just to kill 50. So what happens is, of course, that um, 50 of the recaptured great escapers and they're captured in various parts of the Reich, most of them pretty near the camp, it has to be said, uh, are shot. um, Not collectively in a field, as happens in the the film, but they're shot in kind of ones and twos in the back of the neck, back of the head uh, by Gestapo officers while they're being supposedly taken back to the camp. So it's it's a very nasty way to go. Um, and that's what happens to Bushel and his escape partner, Emil Scheidhauer, a free French pilot. And they are um uh, uh, shot in the back of the road near Zaarbrucken, right at the other end of Germany. So it's a um it, it it's the ramifications clearly for the POWs are absolutely dreadful. Um there there is a mass roundup. I don't know the precise figures, but it would have been another several thousand other escapees would have been rounded up to so the great escape has obviously ruined it for everybody else um and it's uh the ramifications for the guards and the camp staff are terrible because when the gestapo and the Kripo, the german criminal police turn up to the camp to investigate the great escape they're not questioning the prisoners they're questioning the germans and they find a huge amount of bribery and corruption and blackmailing has been going on um you know finding kind of you know you know, Red Cross chocolate, cigarettes, all the telltale signs of bribery. Um, and indeed, you know, Lindyne, the commandant, is put under fortress arrest. Some of the guards are sent to prison. I mean, I argue, and, and indeed, this is in the RAF's official report, you know, written by one of the POWs. He says that the Great Escape couldn't have happened without the Germans. And he says it with obviously some irony. And I argue in my book, that it's the you know greatest <laughs> greatest Anglo-German cooperation since the marriage of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert.
0: So you touched on there the, the murder of 50 of the escapees by the Gestapo under the Zagan Order. How did the Germans try to cover up these murders?
1: Well, the Germans tried to cover it up by saying that the prisoners were shot while trying to escape. And they were well within their rights to shoot people trying to escape because that was enshrined in the Geneva Protocols that said that, you know, if a prisoner was running away, you were entitled to shoot him. Uh, you're probably meant to give him some warning. So they tried to use that as their legal get-out. And um, what they did with the bodies was to cremate them immediately in order to reveal that, um, yes, uh, that bullet wound in the back of the neck, obviously at close range, therefore unlikely shot while trying to escape. Um, and they they filled in all the forms, and they said they were shot trying to escape, and the urns come back to the camp, which obviously is obviously a very grim moment. Um, and obviously nobody believes it, not 50 out of 76. I mean, that's just totally un- implausible. And word gets back to London and uh it, it is uh, absolutely um you know it, you know there, it, there's it's this is one of the biggest basically acts of mass murder the Germans have carried out against the allied POWs during the war you know there were massacres battlefield massacres as well like Malmedy and Wormhut things like that but no certainly this this was it wasn't unparalleled but it was particularly particularly vile um, I know that there were clearly bigger acts of murder going on in the Third Reich at the time, which I don't need to tell anybody about. But there was a service carried out at St. Martin in the Fields in Trafalgar Square um, for, for the 50 who had died. And that took place during the war. Um, the, uh, there were you know, diplomatic cables sent to the Germans from the British via the Swiss, you know, protesting most strongly. And of course, the war was, you know, it's 1944. d days about to happen. The whole thing feels like kind of, you know, in relative terms, small beer. But of course, you know, it was still regarded incredibly seriously at the time.
0: You touched on it, obviously, much earlier on. Um, What was the reason behind the Germans turning off the underground microphones during those three months of Harry's construction? Because obviously that played a big part, didn't it, in it being able to be made? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, that was just total cock-up. The system was being rewired or maintained, and whoever was rewiring or maintaining it forgot to turn it back on. So the equivalent is a bit like, you know, someone coming to fix your burglar alarm sorts it out and then forgets to put it back on. So, you know, that's what had happened. Now, the prisoners didn't know that. I mean, what the prisoners also didn't know was that as the war drew on, the guards weren't in the towers, didn't have any ammunition in their rifles. So it was complete bluff. So you could have just walked out of the camp at certain points. So, yeah, I mean, there, there was, you yeah, know, but obviously you're not, you're not going to know that. So you've got to remember that the, the German guards themselves were quite elderly um, and quite, you know, they were kind of very corruptible and useless. Um, And and the RAF, um, you know, the Allied Flyers regarded them, you know, with a lot of disdain. They didn't regard maybe the sort of the the camp senior staff like Lindiner and his deputy and people like that. But certainly the average guard, you know, was a a pretty average fellow, shall we say.
0: Were there any other mass breakouts by Allied POWs during the war?
1: Yes, there were other mass breakouts. I mean, certainly the Brits had done on the year before, as I've said. The French had done, uh, uh, I think, have the biggest Great Escape, uh, French POWs, during the war. I know Russian POWs are doing them quite often. So, yeah, the, it, the, the Great Escape is unique for two reasons. One, because of the mass murder that took place afterwards. And two, because Paul Brickhill, a Australian journalist who was in Stalagliff 3, wrote a very sensational book about it called The Great Escape. And that was an incredibly popular book, which then in case you know, became an incredibly popular film. So that's one of the reasons why we're kind of talking about it today is because it's kind of entered into our kind of World War II mythology, if you like.
0: What reminders or memorials are there today that commemorate The Great Escape?
1: Well, there there is a memorial to the Great Escape. There's actually there's a little memorial garden there, and I've taken people to the site of the Great Escape. Um, it's worth going, um, and uh, I may even try and take a tour there at some point again. I um, uh, there is there's a little garden uh, to the sort of uh, east west side of the camp where there is two there's a small memorial that was built by the POWs during the war with tools and money paid for by Lindiner, the commandant, because he was so appalled what the Gestapo had done. So and and the prisoners promised not to use the tools for escape attempts. And indeed, the prisoners were told not to make any more escape attempts. It wasn't worth it. Everyone knew which way the war was going, and 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 London said, "Look, just forget trying to escape. It's not worth the risk." Um, so there is, and then there was another memorial, a bigger memorial built, uh, which has got three scrolls on it with the names of the fifty who died, and the three scrolls, of course, represent the three tunnels. So yeah, there is a nice memorial garden there, and whenever one goes, there's normally some flowers um, and, uh, and, and wreaths laid often by visiting, you know, Brits largely, but, you know, there's other nationalities, of course, because there were Czechs, Lithuanians, Poles, you know, you name it, are on the Great Escape. You know, this is, this is an international cooperation.
0: After the war, were those responsible for the Zagan Order murders ever brought to justice? And, and how did the Allies even begin to track these men down in the chaotic conditions of a divided post-war Germany?
1: It's a very good question. It's it's very hard. I mean, I've got the uh, war crimes wanted list, and it's about 100,000 long. So, you know, the perpetrators of the the, the Great Escape Murders, which go from Hitler down to a Gestapo driver, um, you know, you've got probably in total about 200 people involved in that chain of command. And in the appendix of my book, you can see them all listed there and all their appropriate fates. Now, a lot of them were, were either killed in action, some of them simply disappeared. Some of them uh, were um, were arrested after the war and brought to justice. Um, so the, the the men who killed Bushel and Tiedhauer brought to justice and and hanged. But as as the years went by, um, the the sentences got more and more lenient. It was sort of felt that these guys were, you know, maybe maybe they were under duress. I don't think they really were. I think that's questionable. They weren't. They couldn't really use the following orders defense. But I think that we were getting very. Wary of constantly hanging war criminals after the war and felt this wasn't a great way of kind of promoting peace. Um, you know, you've got an RAF special investigation branch carrying out the hunt for the Great Escape murderers. So they had their, their own units, which are on top of the British Army's war crime investigation teams and units. But no, as you say, you know, with with, with minimal technology, minimal budget, minimal, you know, uh, facilities, you know, launching 100,000 manhunts across Germany is very difficult. Um, and indeed, that is why many of the great escape murderers
0: do get away with it. You touched on the Anglo-German cooperation, I suppose we should call it, um, earlier on the podcast. But could it might be a bit of a counterfactual question, but could the great escape have ever happened without German assistance? Well, I mean, no, it don't no, it couldn't.
1: It really couldn't. I mean, just think of the passes. If you need forged passes, those were largely produced, quite a few were produced uh, by a German guard's wife back in Hamburg after he had been sort of blackmailed or bribed for her to produce them on her typewriter. You know, it's very hard to, to, to write typewriter writing, if you see what I mean, typewriter font, you know, no matter how skilled an artist you are, you know, it, it, it's very hard. And, and to do that repeatedly for 200 people, you know, no. So a lot of these things were, so the passes were partly produced by the Germans, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the escape clothes, the currency, the rations and so on and so forth. A lot of these things were obtained through bribery, you know, cameras to produce photographs of passes were obtained through through bribery and corruption. So, you know, and, and, and the fact that, you know, there was a lot of laxity in, in, in the way that the guards, um, you know, behaved meant that, no, I, do, I really don't think it could have happened without the Germans. And that's just not my words for it. It's also the words of the RAF officer who wrote the official account of the Great Escape, which you can see in the public record office in queue.
0: Bushell had, in fact, been pre war numerous times about not undertaking a mass escape. If they had, in fact, opted not for a mass breakout, but lots of mini ones in smaller groups, of say five or six men, do you think this would have been a better chance of success, and I guess ultimately survival for those men?
1: I hundred percent think that there would have been a better chance of success if you just get out. I mean, only about twenty of the greatest Escapers realistically had any chance of getting home. Why? Because they could speak, um, they could speak the language. They, 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 they were, they, 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 just, they looked the part, and they were largely those who were non-British. And so, I think that it would have made sense if you could have done to get four or five of them out every night um and 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 seal the tunnel back up if you could the problem was of course the night they did the escape there was still snow and mud on the ground so the exit of the tunnel because it doesn't emerge into the woods would have been very visible during daylight um you know as 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 day had come up so i don't think you would have been able to get away with just slipping a few out every night but certainly the germans said you know and even after the war when the some of the guards and the POWs had reunions and you know one of the Germans a man called Glemnitz a very intelligent man just said look it was a really dumb thing to do and we kept telling you you know don't you know we knew you were planning something big yeah you know, we got a sense of it don't do it it's going to be counterproductive um and 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 a man called Piba, one of the guards one of the officers said you know just you, know, at the time, get out in twos and threes. You're not then going to have the weight of the German security system upon you. You're not going to have Gestapo reprisals, which is what the Germans genuinely feared and had warned Bushel and Wingsday about. So, yeah, I, I think you know, little and often might have been better than
0: you know a lot at once. Touching on that fallout game for the German guards uh, of Stalagloft three. Were they essentially replaced after this, and did many of them get sent off, you know, for the, the much feared Eastern Front?
1: Uh, maybe a couple. I don't. I don't know the fate of all those who were arrested. I think some were, you know, given kind of six, seven months in in, in military prison. Um, Lindiner uh, pleaded kind of medical exhaustion, so he avoided prison. Um, <clears throat> so uh, no, I mean a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of the guards. I don't. They were too old to be transferred to frontline positions. I mean, you're not using a 22-year-old fit guy to be a POW camp guard. You're using someone ancient, my age, you know, 49, to be a camp guard. You know, and he's he's you know relatively old boy. So no, they, they, they those who are proved to be corrupt got a spell in prison, um, and and the rest just stayed there. What made you want to research and write about the Great Escape? Well, like lots of people, I was, uh, you know, and I still am a big fan of the movie and I'd read the Paul Brickhill book. But I thought like so many other stories from the war or indeed any period of history, there's just no doubt that if you start lifting up the rug and looking at the true stories, something very different emerges. So, you know, I went to that as a fishing expedition at the public record office at Kew National Archives and also looked for German documents and, and looked for you know original interviews carried out with POWs before the film had taken place, and what emerged was a very different story—the story that I've been, you know, talking to you about—and um, realizing that actually it, it's good to get to the heart of these stories and not just listen to the kind of tub-thumping, patriotic, jingoistic version of them. It's not because I think that, you know, I, I want to sort of dismantle. <laughs> Britain or anything like that I don't have any sort of particular sort of you know sort of agenda like that but I just think it's important to even if you find it personally uncomfortable to tell the story itself
0: and that's really you know that's what drew me to it. During the research of the book you must have listened to countless uh, archive interviews with veterans and perhaps even interviewed them in person those that were still surviving other than obviously the main individuals that did survive the ordeal, um, are there any particular stories from those people you've met or interviews you listened to that have stuck with you as part of this?
1: I think one of the ones, uh, uh, I, I did interview a man called Alfie Fripp, um, who is the uncle of Robert Fripp from King Crimson for uh, Prog Rock fans. Um, and he wasn't actually on the escape, but he was a sergeant pilot in Luft 3 at the time. And, and he was very, you know, I was, I was very sort of honoured to interview him shortly before he died. And but I think that you know, the thing that sort of stuck out with me was actually listening to the interview of a man called Alex Cassie, whose family kindly allowed me to use his excellent illustrations. He was a very good illustrator. Um, and he was just listening to him talking about the fact that about four out of the six people in his room, um, you know, didn't come back from the Great Escape. And they and he he drew a picture of himself with his sort of head turned away from them, you know, and, and he felt incredibly guilty and he, and he just captioned the picture, the one who stayed behind. And he sort of bowed his head in shame. And he sort of self-admonishing himself for being a coward. He wasn't a coward. He just admitted that he suffered from terrible claustrophobia. And, and you know, he couldn't go on the escape. And indeed, it's a very good idea not to let claustrophobics go down on, a, on the escape because they're just going to have a panic attack and, and screw it up. So I think that really sticks with me, is, is, is the fact that as much as we all think or we don't think that... We, you know, we, we 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 appreciate valor and heroism. It's important to remind ourselves that the majority of people don't behave particularly bravely. They don't do, you know, what in later life they wish they had done. And I think that it takes a strong man to turn around and say, you know, I didn't go. And I don't feel good about that. And being honest about that. And that to me was a very sort of human and identifiable characteristic. Certainly something that I find personally identifiable Rather than someone who's ridiculously brave or courageous or foolhardy, I think the majority of people, as I say, didn't want to take part in escape activities because they wanted to save their skin, and that is how humans behave. You know, would I have sheltered if I lived in Germany, Jewish people in my attic, risking my own family's lives? Well, I just don't think I would have risked my own children's lives for those lives of other people's children, because we behave selfishly, and I I I don't think I've got the moral courage to do that. So I think that's really stuck with me, Alex Cassie and
0: and, and the cartoon he drew of staying behind. That's an absolutely fascinating uh, tale, that is. So thank you for sharing that. Are there any other books you're currently working on?
1: I am working on lots of projects, if I can very quickly tell you about those. Um, I'm writing a biography of Joseph Mengele, the so-called doctor of Auschwitz, or one of the doctors of Auschwitz. I'm also doing a series of Crowdcast conversations every uh, month. Uh, my next one is all about uh, the greatest missions of SOE. And that is a sort of video crowdcast that you can tune into. You have to pay. Um, and that is starting, uh, That my third series starts on uh, at the end of, um, just in the week before Easter. Go to at Guy Walters at Twitter to learn about that. And um, I'm also uh, launching the, uh, I'm also doing the Daily Mail History Podcast, which is starting very shortly. And
0: uh, that I am working on as well. So yeah, I've got lots to do. Fantastic. We look forward to those. And obviously we'll be sharing those on social media. One thing I did want to ask you, um, James mentioned it, and obviously we have ways, that you have one of the original signs from Colditz adorning your wall at home. And how on <laughs> earth did you come to get that?
1: I've I've got the, the original station sign from Colditz station that the prisoners would have walked under during the war. So it's a big iron and wooden sign saying Colditz, which weighs... Almost a ton, <laughs> not quite, but it weighs a lot. And uh, yeah, I found it in a barn outside Coldits. Colditz. It uh, um, lived here by an old boy who collected memorabilia. And he's got a small station sign up in his little museum of curios um, at a castle quite near Colditz. And some some listeners who've been to Colditz may have been to this bloke's castle. It's called Podlvitz, I think. And uh, I said, Well, look, you've got the small station sign, but have you got the station sign? You know, the big one, about the length of uh, about, about 10 foot long. And he goes, come with me in, 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 into his barn. And there it was. And I was taking a tour and, um, and there was this massive sign. I went, well, what are you going to do with it? And he says, well, you can buy it if you want. I said, well, how much? And he goes, well, I got it for 80 euros. So you can have it for 160 euros. And I went, here you go. Here's the cash. So he manhandled it onto the bus. I got it to Berlin and eventually got it back to Britain. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great um it's a great object. It really is. I I mean I I my wife thinks it's ridiculous and I love it. <laughs>
0: fantastic, fantastic. One thing I would love to do if you're interested guy is have you back on the World of Nation podcast talking about cold-its. Is that something you would fancy doing? Yeah, I'd
1: love to talk about cold Uh that's fun. I wrote a novel set in Coldit, so I know a bit about it and I I've, I've been there about five or six times. So, yeah, it's it's quite interesting talking about cold. It's also just from kind of what happened to it after the war and, and 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 you know, what it looks like today compared to what it looked like when I first went there about 15 years ago. So that's interesting as well. But, of course, also the escapes, of course, everyone loves talking about.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's pencil that in at some point. And I look forward to speaking to you again very soon.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. And, uh, yeah, very good to talk to you. And I hope to see you again at the Chalk Valley History Festival when it starts up again.
0: thanks for listening we hope you found it of interest if you enjoyed this episode please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review we hugely appreciate support we should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the o group on our social media channels including a link to guy's book for those who wish to delve even further into this you can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on twitter facebook and youtube at world nation and also instagram at world nation hq Obviously, a big thank you to Guy for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic. He'll be joining us again very soon for another O-Group episode in the World's Station podcast. In it, we'll be talking about Coldits and some of the fascinating escape attempts that were made from here as well.